Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I'd like to talk to you about something I call second hands. Over the last 20 years, I'd say that for about a third of my patients, I was the first and only chiropractor they had ever seen. That's a pretty high number, but that still means that for two thirds of my patients, I was not the only chiropractor that they had ever seen. And sometimes I was just one more in a long line of chiropractors that they had seen. This often put me in the position of explaining to them why I was different and why this was to their benefit without criticizing or insulting anyone they had seen previously. As you can imagine, it can be a touchy situation, but the ability to handle it well can be a tremendous asset. So let's talk about what it takes to be the second hands. From the beginning of my practice, I recognized the need to acquire patients who had never been to a chiropractor before. After all, it doesn't make sense for chiropractors to simply trade patients and perpetually continue to say, see the same 10% or 8% or 6% of the population. If the profession is going to grow, then that means that we all need to see patients who have never seen a chiropractor before. I also know that some patients or potential patients have seen a chiropractor once before and the experience was so poor that they would never see a chiropractor again. These are also patients that I seek out because I feel like we as a profession owe it to them to give them the best we have to offer since they've already experienced the worst. To accomplish this feat, you must have good or excellent diagnostic and adjustive skills. And those are the things we talk about every week. Assuming you have these skills, you're going to still need something else. And that's the ability to communicate well with these patients. So let's start with the do's and don'ts and the principles of good communication for this unique type of patient. Now, your new patient may not hate their previous chiropractor, but they might actually love them. They might perpetually praise their previous chiropractor as the best they've ever seen. This becomes more difficult when you recognize that the previous chiropractor was simply doing the flying seven and making a lot of noise. And the patient's appraisal of them as the best ever is based entirely on the amount of noise they made. And now you know this is the patient's criteria for judging you as well. Now what are you gonna do? Are you gonna adjust for maximum noise? Or are you going to do what they need regardless of how much noise it does or doesn't make? It's not a fun dilemma, but it does happen. For me personally, I honestly don't care if this person judges me to be the best they've ever seen or not. Letting go of the need to achieve that designation is the first step to putting myself in a position where I can actually help them. I don't want to understate that because I think it's vitally important to get out of your own ego and consider the patient's point of view. They've either been left uneducated or they were poorly educated and their perspective of chiropractic is serving them just as poorly as it's serving you. At this point, you don't need to criticize them or even point out how ignorant their perspective is, but they need to be mentally adjusted and ushered in the right direction. Now, I've had my fair share of patients who don't just share everything I just said, but they top it off with a strong, dogmatic personality that says, I know what I want, I expect you to do what I want, and I've been seeing chiropractors for years, so I know more about chiropractic than you do. Fortunately, these patients are not the majority, but they do exist, and I'm glad they do, because that's how I figured out the best principles to use when handling patients like this. The first principle is that there's no way I'm going to change their perspective with anything I have to say. We see the same mentality played out continually on the political minefield. You are not going to change a person's political perspective by words, even if those words are rationally based in logic. When a person thinks they know chiropractic, and especially if they think I don't, I know going in that words are going to be of little use. Over the years, 
I've seen many chiropractors who will waste so much of their valuable time trying to convince people with words, with no recognition that words are never going to work, and words were never going to work. It isn't about saying the right thing or even turning yourself into a salesperson. The way you sell chiropractic, at least our brand of chiropractic, is the same way you sell uh, a Roush Mustang. I got in that car and the seat just sucked me in like it was made for me. The sound of the engine when it started up, the feeling of the wheel in my hand, the stick in my other hand and the pedals under my feet. I could feel the power in my hands, my feet, and even my butt in the seat. The acceleration and the sound. No words could sell that car. It was the experience that sold that car. Well, when I have a student who's already pledged their allegiance to some other brand of chiropractic, and now I'm trying to convince them that Gonstead is a better way, I also know that words can only go so far. The greatest epiphany they will ever have is to experience the adjustment, properly applied for themselves. If that's what it takes to convince a student who does have the capacity to understand, then you know that that's what it will take to convince a patient who does not have the capacity or the training to understand. So getting back to our original patient, the exact same scenario is true. I'm not going to change my patient's chiropractic paradigm with words. The only thing that will change their perspective is the experience, an adjustment that calls into question everything they thought they knew before they met me. Now, if you're new to this, I know that might sound like an overstatement, but I know there are many Gonstead doctors out there who have done this time and time again, just as I have. The adjustment itself has the power to create an experience that defies all explanation. Does Disneyland have to sell their rides? Does the Ritz-Carlton have to advertise during Judge Judy or the Super Bowl? No, they know it's the experience and the referrals that come from that experience that generate their business, not what they say about themselves in advertisements. Now there's a catch. Imagine you go to Disneyland and half the rides are shut down for the day. The last time my family went to Disneyland, the park was so badly oversold that we spent most of the day standing around waiting. That was an experience that convinced us that we wouldn't be back for a long time, and we haven't been. So it's important to understand that if we rely on the experience for the sale, then our number one priority is to ensure that every customer gets the same experience that they are expecting. We also had the experience that the young kids running the rides and organizing the parades at Disneyland were so rude and discourteous that it prompted my wife to simply say, I think Walt Disney would be rolling over in his grave if he saw how these young employees are treating his guests. I had to agree. My grandparents were one of the three families that sold their orange grove to Walt Disney so he could build the original Disneyland. To this day, my mother distinctly remembers walking through the park and she saw Walt Disney riding through the park on his horse-drawn wagon, enjoying the joy he saw on the faces of all his guests. My grandmother, being who she was, walked right up to Walt Disney and told him who they were. His response? Climb aboard. I'd like to show you what I did with your property. My mom still remembers the looks on everyone's faces as they recognized Walt Disney, and she could see them thinking that these people with him must be really special to be riding with him. That's what Walt Disney excelled at making people feel special, and it's such an easy thing to do. He went on to explain to them that he originally created the Jungle Cruise by turning their orange trees upside down so the roots would grow together above ground and look like vines. He also showed my grandmother the tree she had planted in front of their house, which he had intentionally preserved. For many years, and long after his death, that tree remained and was located next to the Swift Family Robinson Treehouse, and it was the only tree taller than the treehouse. When they turned it into the Tarzan Treehouse, they chopped down the tree. We used to love to go there to see our tree, but unfortunately we can no longer do that. The point I'm trying to make is simply the power of experience. Additionally, the power of connection. Being able to visit and see our tree kept us coming back year after year. As you might have guessed, we don't go nearly as often as we once did, and that's at least partially influenced by the absence of our tree. I think most people would agree that modern day Disney has made profits more important than preserving the experience. 
Unfortunately, I fear many chiropractors have done the same. If we recognize that at least two-thirds of our patients have previous experience with chiropractic, we cannot neglect the power of the experience and the need to show them a new reality. I know from my years of practicing, as well as anybody, that in the middle of a busy day, you get fatigued and you just want to make it through the day. And then you get the new patient who thinks they know more about chiropractic than you do, and they think you're no different from Burger King, so they think they can have it their way. My neck only moves if you do it face up. Can you do the bear hug one with your hand behind my back? I just love that one. Can I get a full adjustment this time and do my arms and legs too? In fact, just do all my joints. And you think to yourself, is it really worth the battle? Why would I waste my valuable time on this patient? Well, for me, it's not my intention to convince them I'm the best chiropractor ever, and I'm not willing to do that battle. But it is my intention to convince them that chiropractic is so much more than they think it is, and I am willing to fight that battle. That brings me to the second principle. I absolutely will not compromise. That isn't just true now, but that was true the day I started practice. And I think it's an enormous reason why I'm doing Gosta to this day, while many, in fact most, of my classmates are not. The only difference between us is that I absolutely refuse to compromise, especially at the very beginning. I know that there is zero chance I'll be doing a supine cervical, but I don't have to tell the patient that. There's no way I'm doing an anteriority either, but again, I don't have to bluntly tell them that. Instead, without criticizing anyone else's approach, I'm simply going to tell them what I do, why I do it, and how it will benefit them. If I can get them to give me a chance, I know I can wow them with the experience. If, however, they are unmovable, then I'm going to suggest that they see someone else, and I'd be happy to make the referral. Some might think that I accuse you of being unreasonable and overreacting. I simply tell them that my reputation is all I have, and in fact, the reason they're in my office right now is because of that very reputation. If they're not willing to allow me to do what I know is in their best interest, then I'm not willing to stake my reputation on someone else's whims and desires. If they're simply looking for someone who will take their order and give them what they want, then I know many chiropractors who will fit that bill, but that's not me. That brings me to the third principle. Always leave the door open and allow the patient to return without losing face. Too many chiropractors are emotionally self-indulgent, so they close the door and they cut the patient off entirely. That'll show them, they say to themselves. Honestly, is this any different than what the medical community does with their patients? Try having an honest research-based discussion with a medical doctor about vaccine science or the ineffectiveness of spinal fusion. It will never happen because they don't think they have to do it. Most patients now recognize that medical professionals can no longer tell the line between dogma and science. If, as a chiropractor, you shut them down in the same way, they will draw the same conclusion that you too are driven by dogma and not by science. As much as you may not be in the mood to do it, you need to listen to their concerns and address them intelligently with facts that they can verify for themselves. This might require you to take a good look at your own ideas and separate dogma from science. Let me give you an example. Fluoride is a topic that comes up frequently in the dental practice, but it also comes up frequently in the chiropractic practice as well. I don't know where you fall on the fluoride spectrum, but I had no opinion. I just wanted to know facts. I heard a lot of accusations coming from parents, but I think the wildest one was that, don't you know that the Nazis used fluoride in the water at Auschwitz for mind control, and this Nazi agenda is still alive and well in our modern day water system? You mean to tell me that I've been unknowingly drinking Nazi water? I need to know more about this. Well, I figured whether it's true or false, it should be pretty easy to figure out either way. I figured the Jewish historians at the Holocaust Museum would be a pretty good place to start. 
To my surprise, not only did they state that this is comically untrue, as there was no fluoride in their drinking water, but the water was so notoriously untreated that its toxicity not only led to the death of many Jewish prisoners, but it also led to the death of many SS soldiers. This wasn't the result of conspiracy for mind control, but it was the result of the apathy towards humanity that totalitarian regimes are known for. Then there's the argument that fluoride doesn't even help with dental problems. It's just a neurotoxin. In fact, I just recently listened to a podcast where a dentist stated that fluoride is not approved by the FDA for the treatment of cavities. Now, some people might be tempted to believe this, but that would be a logical fallacy called appeal to authority. In fact, the FDA has approved fluoride for the treatment of cavities, but this approval is extremely dose-dependent. This is a detail that often gets lost in the mix. One of the newest FDA-approved treatments for cavities is called silver diamine fluoride, where the fluoride acts as a carrier to take the silver inside the to the tooth and kill the bacteria hiding in there. Okay, so why did the dental profession first begin using fluoride in the first place? Here's the simple version of the story, although you can certainly look it up if you'd like to read the detailed version. Dr. Frederick McKay and Dr. G.B. Black discovered the presence of fluorosis and were determined to discover its cause, not knowing what it was. They consequently discovered that children with the unsightly appearance of fluorosis did not develop tooth decay. When they eventually discovered that naturally high levels of fluoride in the water were causing this condition, they theorized that perhaps a low level of fluoride could offer protective value without producing the brown stains associated with fluorosis. What we now know is that fluoride does something very unique. While most substances that are designed to increase bone strength, like osteoporosis medication, function by limiting the action of osteoclasts, fluoride is unique as the only substance known to increase osteoblastic activity, therefore to actually build new healthy bone. When someone says that fluoride does not prevent cavities, that is verifiably untrue. Since the early studies of Dr. Black, fluoride has proven, at low therapeutic doses, to reduce cavities by 60% or more, and this has been proven time and time again. But it's a neurotoxin, some will say. Well, then don't swallow your toothpaste like a Neanderthal. You're supposed to spit it out because there's a huge difference between topical application and systemic application. Obviously, we could go on with this topic for a long time, and to do it justice, we would probably need to do that. My point is simply that to address these concerns, I had to do some research, and that meant looking on both sides. I found the arguments on one side were easy to refute, even though they might be emotionally satisfying. I think we should recognize that this emotional satisfaction is the real obstacle we're facing, and that cannot be undone by eliciting an emotional reaction from the patient. That will only reinforce their preconceived perspective and opinions. In the end, fluoride has a place and a benefit when it's used in a very specific and educated manner. It isn't wrong to warn people about the dangers of overfluoridation. At the very least, this could lead to the unsightly appearance of fluorosis. However, fluoride does have a therapeutic range, which happens to be incredibly small. It also isn't wrong to let people know that within its therapeutic range, fluoride can do something that nothing else can do. As my wife always says, when it comes to treatment, it's always a matter of dosage. She also says, whether you choose to use fluoride or not, you still have a problem. And if you aren't going to use fluoride to solve that problem, then you better have another approach in mind, or else I can tell you what your future will look like. So, the impetus falls on the dentist to explain to their patients exactly how fluoride should be used and how it should not be used. Unfortunately, this does not often happen for the age-old reason that they don't get paid to do it. Now, I don't want to leave you hanging on this topic, so I should tell you that there is a new product that can also rebuild bone without a negative side effect of fluoride, and it's called hydroxyapatite. But that's a topic for another day. Suffice it to say, I actually use a toothpaste that contains hydroxyapatite so I can use as little fluoride as possible. My real point here is simply in the communication. 
For me, it is a non-emotional topic. I simply give the information, looking for the most balanced and educated approach. What the patient chooses is ultimately not my concern, but I will work with them regardless of their choice. My wife has patients who refuse fluoride. She always tells them that you can absolutely be cavity-free without using fluoride, but that means you're going to need to eliminate sugar from your diet. That is a scientifically true fact. We know that most of them will not remove sugar from their diet and that their children are at a high risk for early childhood caries because of it. But that's the choice that they made, and we'll work with them to the best of our ability regardless of the choice that they make. I use this example because it's outside the typical chiropractor's wheelhouse, although I have no doubt that some might have really strong opinions about it, and perhaps some might even hate me for what I just said. That brings me to my final principle. You must always tell the patient the truth, even if they hate you for it. Yes, and some will. It certainly isn't all, and some will be very grateful that you were honest with them. But no doubt, some will hate you for your unwavering honesty. We now live in a society where most opinions are held with as much fervor as was previously only seen in certain religious cultures, most notably the cults with leaders like Jim Jones and David Koresh. It should certainly be obvious that holding every opinion with this level of emotional attachment and convincing yourself that you're educated because you read it on the internet is only going to make the role of doctoring more difficult as time goes by. Dean Smith said, if you're going to make every game a matter of life and death, then you're going to have problems. For one thing, you'll be dead a lot. I honestly believe that the unique role of the, of the Gonstead doctor and a role that we can fill that most chiropractors cannot is the ability to take previously dissatisfied patients and turn them into raging chiropractic fans by changing their life with a Gonstead adjustment. In fact, the more familiar a person is with chiropractic prior to experiencing their first Gonstead adjustment, the more profoundly obvious the difference is to them. Most patients have never felt a truly P to A adjustment that put the vertebra back on top of its nucleus. That's why it's so vitally essential for each one of us to have the skill necessary to create that type of adjustment. We cannot afford to be sloppy in our technique. Even now, I continue to go to seminars, and I don't ever anticipate that I will stop doing that. I continue to reverse engineer my adjustments and evaluate the various components in an effort to find ways to improve and deliver a better adjustment. I will never stop improving, and neither should you. So let's review these basic principles. First, there's no way that I'm going to change a person's perspective with what I have to say, especially in this day and age. Experience is the only thing that will change a person's perspective, so we must put our effort into creating life-changing experiences. Second, do not compromise. Now, if you look up the word compromise, then you'll find many quotes that implore people to compromise as though it is the greatest of all virtues. Former FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, who wrote the excellent book Never Split the Difference, makes the point that if a kidnapper threatens to kill the hostages, we can't compromise and agree to have them kill only half the hostages. There are circumstances where we cannot live in the ideological world of compromise because we must recognize the reality that compromise is unacceptable to all parties involved. Because our adjustment must be perfect to correct the subluxation, we cannot compromise our adjustment because anything less than perfect is ineffective. Chris Foss also states that in many circumstances, compromise often leads to a poor outcome for everybody. He gives this example. Imagine a man who's going to wear a black suit. His wife wants him to wear black shoes, but he wants to wear brown shoes. So they compromise, and he wears one black shoe and one brown shoe. This is obviously not the best outcome, and either of the previous two outcomes would have been better. This leads us to the concept that sometimes no deal is better than a bad deal. In a kidnapping, he describes a bad deal as one where money goes in, but a hostage doesn't come out. It would be better to have no deal and to continue the negotiation. I realize I'm getting off track here, but I think it's important to point out the logical fallacy of always compromising regardless of the cost. Compromise is not a virtue, and it should not be viewed as one. Third, regardless of what they decide, 
always leave the door open and allow the patient to return without losing face. If you cause the patient to hate you, they will probably end up hating chiropractic because of you. In the end, what does that really serve? Finally, and this was actually the first thing we said, let's, let's let go of our ego and the need to be liked or revered and put ourselves in the position to help the patient by making it all about them and not about us. Now, I know many people who do not actually think they are the center of the universe, but their way of relating to people is to always tell a detailed story about themselves. This bad habit has the tendency of communicating to people that you do think you're the center of the universe, and a story can't be a good story unless it's about you. Like I said, I find this behavior is typically more of a bad habit than an indication of narcissism, but unfortunately, it's usually perceived as an indication of the latter. If you have this bad habit, destroy it. Destroy it immediately. When this habit truly becomes a problem is when you tell a story and I respond to your story with the magical words, you think that's bad, wait do you hear this, or that's nothing. It really doesn't matter what I say after that, because you've already tuned me out in your mind, and rightfully so. This concept of being the second hands might seem a bit strange to you, but I think you'll find that these patients that have had previous bad experiences with chiropractic are the perfect opportunity to redefine chiropractic for them and to open them up to a new way of thinking. I want to take a little bit of a left turn here and talk about something different, but I think it's still very much related. The other day, I suddenly realized something. I'm a Gonstead Diplomate, Vice President of GCSS, and Instructor at Life University. None of those things are a consequence of a decision that I made last week or even last year. They are all the result of a decision that I made when I was a student over 20 years ago. If you're a student now, don't think that the decisions you make now are of no consequence or that you always have time to make decisions later. John Maxwell says that good leaders make good decisions early and then manage those decisions for the rest of their lives. Charles Stanley says, you reap what you sow, more than you sow, and later than you sow. Don't neglect the importance of making good decisions today. I practice near one of the best whitewater rafting rivers in the country. The river is as thrilling as it is deadly, as several people will die in the river every year. There's one particular turn where you're headed down towards a 20-foot wall of rock, and you have to make a left-hand turn. The experienced guides will tell you that as you're approaching the wall, you need to turn your raft 90 degrees to the left so you're going downstream sideways. This is extremely counterintuitive and against all instincts, especially in the moment. So you have to make a decision. Am I going to trust the expert, or am I going to do what feels right? As I approached the wall, I had to make the decision. I turned the boat 90 degrees to the left, and as we went downstream sideways, I almost instantly regretted it. We felt completely out of control, and every instinct said to abandon the plan and turn the boat back. But I didn't. I left the boat sideways for a moment longer. And in that moment, I felt the river change. The water stopped pushing us from the left, and it was instantly behind us. The acceleration was hard, and it was fast. In fact, it was the most exciting and fun part of the whole river. When we made it back, the river guide said, Aren't you glad you took our advice? How do you know I took your advice? I responded. Because if you hadn't, we'd be fishing you out of the river. See, if the water changes directions and you are facing the wall, as your instincts tell you you should be, the water will hit you from the right and turn you upside down just as you start to pick up speed. When you turn your boat sideways and you endure a few moments of discomfort, you set yourself up for one of the most thrilling and exhilarating rides of your life. When I observe students, I see so many who choose the comfort of the moment, but they have no idea that they're setting themselves up to have their boat overturned simply because they're relying on their instincts and what feels right at the moment. Conversely, there are some students who endure the discomfort of additional hours outside of class, many, many failed attempts at adjusting, 
and constantly making life harder on themselves than, it actually, than is actually required. But the end result is that they're setting themselves up for the most thrilling and rewarding ride of their entire lives. Well, I hope you learned something today, and I hope I helped you to have a better idea of how best to navigate this minefield of being the second hands. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible. I'll see you again next time.